Our scripture lesson today comes from uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Uh, I want you to pay particular attention to the last line we read together. Uh, It might read oddly to your Western sensibilities. Uh, Let's share in God's good word together. Say hello to Priscilla and Aquila, who have worked hand in hand with me in serving Jesus. They once put their lives on the line for me, and I'm not the only one grateful to them. All the non-Jewish gatherings of believers also owe them plenty to say nothing of the church that meets in their house. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Those seem like leading questions, right? Like you should know the answers to those, uh, except uh, the, the real answer is both. Is God at your meeting? Oh, we, got, we sure hope so, um, right? And, and God leads us to a movement. Is, is God uh, in the building? Well, certainly we hope so. Uh, but God's also the body of Christ. And so all of these things that people think of as church, we're going to look at today. Um, and we're going to say, okay, what is Jesus really calling us to do? What are we to be about as we look more and more like him? Uh, We're going to be in this series called Deep and Wide uh, over the next number of weeks leading up to Ash Wednesday when we start our new Lenten series. Now, Ash Wednesday, I hope that you will mark on your calendar because it's also Valentine's Day. It's exactly one month from today, Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday. And this is a big conundrum for the church. What do you do with that? How do you have Ash Wednesday service and also have it be Valentine's Day? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here is our answer. So mark your calendars to be here on Valentine's night because out in the gathering space, we're going to make it look like a wedding reception. We're going to remember our first love, Jesus Christ, and bring the one that you love. So we're going to have finger foods, hors d'oeuvres, all that. We're going to have wedding cake. We're going to have a groom's cake. And then in the Ash Wednesday service, as a part of it, we're going to do a vow renewal. So if you would like to say yes to God and say yes to the one that you love and renew your vows and say yes for better, for worse, uh, we're going to do that on Ash Wednesday. And then we're going to get ashes and say yes to God. I know it's kind of weird, but we'll do both. And then you can go eat cake. And so if you fast like I do uh, on the Wednesdays of Lent, uh, and so we're going to fast. And so um, we won't eat until 6-11 because that's sundown. Um, And so you can come and then we'll start service at 7-11. Not down the street, but like 7-11, okay? And we'll have all that. So you can break fast and celebrate and do all that, and we hope to see you. Uh, hope you'll mark your calendars for that. So we're going to be in this series until then, uh, but we hope to see you then as well. If you have your sermon notes, I hope you take those out. The first thing we start with is, is what is the church? What is the church? That seems like a pretty simple um, question, except the church has been arguing about that for 2,000 years. So let, let's back up a second. What if, if you didn't know anything about church and you just Googled it? This is in your sermon notes. Now, what happens when you Google the word church? What pops up? Well, if you do an image search, it's going to look like that. Photo after photo after photo after photo, hundreds of photos of buildings. Of buildings. Is that the church? Huh. The world thinks so. When, when, when people Google church, this is what they see. Now, so let me ask you this question then. Of the scripture that we just read together, how does that church meet in the house? 
It doesn't. It can't. That can't be what Paul is writing about. That can't be in a, in a house, unless you've got a really big house, right? So that church can't meet in a house. So that's not what the early church thought of a church. When Jesus talked about church, that's not what he talked about. When Paul talked about church, that's not what he talked about. So what is church? So when we look at that Romans passage, right, he says all the non-Jewish gatherings of believers, it started out as a Jewish sect, right, a sect within Judaism, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God that, that all of them were waiting for. A few of them recognized him, and so they started following. But then non-Jewish people started following Jesus. And then they had to figure out, well, what do you do with them? We're going to look at a lot of that next week. What do you do with different people trying to follow the same Jesus? So he says, nothing about the, that's to say nothing about the church that meets in their house. Well, this is a group of believers, apparently non-Jewish believers, that are gathering together as church in a home. So let me talk to you for a second. What do you think of when you think of church? What do you think of? Um, Some people think of church like this. They, this is at Camp Egan. Now they think of youth group, right? Up at the cross, a beautiful thing. Is this church? Now you're afraid to answer. You're like, I don't, I don't know what to say now. Uh, yeah, it is. But it's more than that, isn't it? Certainly it's more than that. Uh, some people think of it like this. This is living water in Guatemala. Uh, Greg Kiner uh, on that trip bringing clean water. Uh, uh, John Hurd right now is in Guatemala uh, bringing water to people who have never had it before. Uh, using a compressor, this church uh, and, and other good friends uh, got together and made happen. Beautiful things. Is this church? Yeah. But it's not all church. That's not the only thing we do. That's not, that's not in, all inclusive of who we are. Right, what about this? Some of you all think about this. And you get real excited about Bible school. Other of you have PTSD about Bible school. You're like, ah, Bible school. You know, um, some people think of this as church, the big event, Right? I'm serving others. Others people um, think of it like this. They think, oh, when we reach out to the community and we help bring other people, the evangelistic piece of church, we think this is church. Now, I know some of my more buttoned up Christian people are like, that's not church. Easter egg hunts can't be church. But it is. That's part of church. It's not all a church. It's not all that we do. It's not all that we're going to do. But this is a part of it. It's a beautiful thing. And, and perhaps my favorite, as simple, simple as it is, not that this is church. We're two or more gathered in Jesus' name. That's church. He's present with us, right? From the littlest among us to the oldest among us, whether that's in a hospital room, a hospice bed, um, a, a toddler room, a Bible school, a small group, all of that's church, isn't it? There's all pe- but, but no one thing of that is the complete piece of church. So the early church was led by men and women who were fueled not by what they believed, it wasn't about doctrine, but what they had seen. Real, live witnesses of the risen Jesus. The disciples, um, other people like Paul who, who came and, and was knocked off his horse by the risen, resurrected Jesus. 500 people at one time. Uh, folks ate with him on uh, the seashore. You remember that Jesus, after his resurrection, lived and, and breathed and walked around for 40 days. And in the Bible, that's what? A long, long time. 39 39 in the Hebrew tradition. 41 41. But 40 is what? Long time. So Jesus walked and talked and was seen by hundreds of people, not by just a few. And the early church was fueled by what they had seen, a personal relationship with Jesus who's very much alive. Now, if you were to go to Istanbul today, you would see uh, this in one of the early uh, basilicas or cathedrals. And and let's just let's talk about from a purely uh, secular standpoint. Okay, from a secular standpoint, um, the story of the church goes something like this. 
a small band of Jewish dissidents uh, defied the superpower of the time and a religious system that had been in place for thousands of years. And within 300 years of the start of it, it prevailed for the next 2,000 years to where we even come today, to where we're here a part of that. And at the center of this grassroots movement is the man Jesus, um, a part of the way. Uh, this Jewish carpenter from a small town um, called Nazareth. Now, this man Jesus then asked his followers to do something that was unthinkable at the time. And this was to love their oppressors. To actually love and care for and pay taxes to their Roman occupiers. And, and this call to even pay taxes or carry their backpack, not just one mile, but two, would, would have blown their minds. Because to pay taxes to Rome was to pay Rome the money they needed to send the soldiers back to keep their boot on your neck. And that's what Jesus asked them to do. To love their enemies and pray for those who would persecute them. It is a different way of living. And only after three years of public ministry, the blind saw, the deaf heard, the lame walked, the dead were raised, uh, those who were demon-possessed were set free. And, and for all of these wonderful things that Jesus was doing, he was arrested, publicly humiliated, stripped, beaten, spat upon, and crucified, executed in front of anyone who wanted to watch on a cross. Not much different than that one. And so the early church then, after his execution, began to meet. This is in Damascus, um, in these small little cutouts, uh, caves, holes, homes, catacombs, wherever they could survive. And these desperate followers claimed that this Jesus rose from the dead and that they had seen him, they had touched him, they'd even eaten with him. And within weeks, hundreds more who had seen him, they all started to, to file into Jerusalem for Pentecost, one of their uh, festivals. And so 50 days after the resurrection... We take our name from the book of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost where 50 days after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes to 120 believers who are all gathered from all around the world, primarily Jews from all different kinds of places. And the Holy Spirit comes and blesses them and gives them power, allows them to understand one another. And on that day alone, 3,000 more people were added to the church in one day. Now, I don't know what we would do if 3,000 people joined Acts 2 next week. Um, you would know, have lots to do, which would be great. But that's what happened. 3,000 were added to their number that day. And within 300 years of that moment, this Jewish knockoff religion replaced the entire Roman and Greek pantheon of gods as the primary belief system in the known world. In the entire known world. Catch this. So for hundreds, if not thousands of years, the Greeks and the Romans had gods like Zeus and Aphrodite and Mars and Ares and Neptune. And Jesus, within 300 years, this small little distant group had completely overturned all of that with the Council of Nicaea at 325 and the conversion of Constantine. So now Rome, the most powerful thing in the whole world, now Christian. And not only that, the group that's now Christian is the same government that crucified its central figure named Jesus. I don't know how to blow your mind. And it is undeniable and undisputable that that is still the case today. So today, roughly 2 to 3 billion people claim the name of Jesus, faith in Jesus. More than a third of the world's population claims some kind of faith in Jesus. Now, that's done in some 46,000 different denominations at this point, over a 2,000-year run. But, but you understand this. this. This is huge. So how, then, does this church work? How do we live? Who are we? What do we do? Well, it depends. There are places that worship in homes and gather and pray. There are others that have huge, huge gatherings. 
Others have smoke machines and lights. And some people have robes and choirs. And the thing is, friends, that you and I, we help determine what comes to mind for the next generation when they hear the term, say with me, church. So what is it that we're handing on to others? You see, we're supposed to be good news. And it absolutely slays me that it seems like at least every other, every third, fourth time that I'm watching the news, the word Christian is thrown out with something that is absolutely, by the world standards, bad news. Absolutely bad news. They're like, what in the world? What are those Christians doing? Now, you might say, well, that's not our Christians. That's other Christians. But it's still our name, right? It's Christians. Well, the Christians are doing this. The Christians are doing that. The Christians hate these people or those people or this thing or that thing. Look, friends, church is not a political party. Understand this? So in the 1960s and 70s, uh, the Democrats tried to politicize the faith movement. Okay? And so in the 60s and 70s, all the Christians were Democrats. Today, you have the same thing on the Republican side. Right? Well, the Christians are... No, 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 no. No, no, no. Friends. Jesus is king of what? Kings and lord of lords. And how many nations? Every nation. So to have the audacity to try to place the church or Jesus in one political affiliation in one particular country is ridiculous. Does it make sense? And so, and, and, and those who've been with me, you know, for nearly 20 years now, know that I'll say the same thing when a Republican's in office and the same thing when a Democrat's in office. It doesn't matter. It's bigger than all that, right? So it, it's the same thing either way. So we've got to get past that. So what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Well, the first reference to church is by Jesus himself. Now, this is up at Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Other people say this, other people say that. What do you say? And, and Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Petros. That's the, the Greek for Peter. And on this Petro, I will build my ecclesia. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So it's, it's a word play. If you look at it in Greek, Peter is rock. Um, and so it's Petro and Petros. Uh, together, uh, this is the word we get petroleum from, same deal. Make sense? And so basically Jesus is preaching uh, with a backdrop of something that represented Hades uh, to his right. And he's like, look, not, not even these pantheon of gods are going to come up against it. That's church. So the Greek word that Jesus uses, God himself in human form, says is ekklesia. Say that with me. Ekklesia. Interestingly, that's not a religious term. Now, we think of it as a religious term because, you know, we're the church. But when Jesus used it, it would have been uh, about a particular group of people, normally a military term. It was a specific group of people sent out for a specific purpose. And so today, um, you know, Jesus might have said something like, well, you um, are Peter, uh, the rock, and um, you're going to lead my special ops unit, my special group to go out in the world and to change the world. You're my alpha group. Um, you are the best of the best. You are SEAL Team 6. You're headed out. Where everybody else is against you, you're a small band, and you're going to change the world. Okay? It was a military term, not a religious one. And so this ecclesia, that's the way it looks in Greek. If you were to look in a, uh, a transliteration of the Bible from English to Greek, it was a gathering of people for a specific purpose. That's all church is. So what is this church about? 
What is our specific purpose? If that's really what church is, church is a gathering of people for a specific purpose. What's our purpose? Well, since 1999, um, I, hope, I hope you all know this. Uh, we say it every week here in multiple services. Our specific purpose is, say it with me, to help non-religious and non-active Christians become radical Christ followers. There were no lack of churches in Edmond in 1999, friends. We weren't supposed to take anybody from any other church. That's why we go to bless the New Grove community that's meeting in Heartland starting today. Friends, we're not in competition with any other church. There's only one group that we're in competition with. Anybody know what that is? The Satanists. That is our competition. We want to pull every person out of the darkness, everyone that has a demonic peace in their life. We want to say no to that and yes to the light. That, that's our competition, in case you had any question about that. So if you've got a friend or neighbor in another light-giving, Jesus-loving church, great. Don't disconnect that. That's good stuff. But if you have somebody who doesn't know Jesus, if they happen to be non-religious or they're not active, then we want to help them follow Jesus. That's what we do here. That's what we do here. The way Andy Stanley puts it is this. He says church is the local expression of the presence of Jesus. Did you know that about yourself? That everywhere you go, everything you do, you present or represent Jesus to the world. And as a piece of Acts 2, you're the local expression of Jesus to this part of the world. That's who we are. Wherever we go. Uh, if you're the Simants, uh, that's over in Turkey. Uh, if you're John Hurd today, that's in Guatemala. Uh, if that's you tomorrow, you're, most of our folks are on a plane somewhere uh, to go serve, do something. So what is this presence of Jesus? If we're going to say that, that we're the local expression of Jesus, then what does that mean? What is the presence of Jesus? Well, the Gospel of John says it this, chapter 1. He says, the word Jesus became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as a father's only son, full of, say this with me, grace and truth. Always together, you always need them both. You can't have one without the other. And the church's temptation, of course, is to start to lean one way or the other, and that's been the problem with the church um, always. You have to hold them together. So Jesus, the presence of Jesus, is the perfect Son of God, perfect in every way, full of, say it again with me, grace and truth. Much easier said than done. Much easier said than done. Now, um, grace, let's, let's kind of dig down into the words for a second. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor of God toward all people. It's not earned, not deserved. And so it always makes me a little nervous when I have somebody in my realm of influence that says, Pastor Mark, I am not getting what I deserve. To which I almost always say, well, thank God. Because, like, like I know you. You know, God knows you better than I do. And we're all saints, we're all sinners. Right? So, of course we don't get what we deserve. And we're thankful for that. God is much more merciful than we deserve. Unmerited favor. There's nothing you can do to earn it or lose it. Right? God is always there for us. Now, we can refuse it. But that's different than losing it. God's always there for us. Grace is unmerited. Now, grace is beautiful in so many ways. Now, let's look at the other side. Well, truth, what is truth? Truth is what is real. What's really going on with you, with me, what's going on around us, the world? What is real? How things really are. How they really are. Not how we might want them to be uh, or anything else. So I want to talk to you real quickly about three temptations for church, our church, for all churches. And I, and I hope that this starts to make sense when you, when you realize the historical context of, of what's going on around. So the three temptations for the church, I think, are these. The first is, since I'm from Oklahoma, I'll just say it this way, getting fancy, right? Getting too big for our britches. 
uh, moving from this ecclesia, or specific purpose for a specific reason, um, to a location like a basilica in Rome uh, or a kirch in, in the uh, Reformation in Germany. Uh, it's simply a German word. Anybody know where uh, the word kirch is translated today? It is church. So we move from this ecclesia, sent out ones, called out ones, changes the world movement to a location. And this is why. Because when Constantine knelt down before Christ and the entire known world uh, basically converted to Christianity, the church changed. In some ways, terribly, in terrible ways. And in other ways, beautiful ways. What was the difference? From the time of Jesus to the year 300, they worshipped in catacombs. They were willing to give their life for what they believed. As a matter of fact, there's a, if you go back and you look at the Didache, which is the early worshiping documents, there's a piece in the liturgy that the Roman church still holds today and the, in the Eastern church, which says, close the doors, close the doors. Anyone that is not a true believer of Jesus, really willing to die for Jesus, must leave now. And, and that's why they have closed communion in ways that we don't. Now, from there, you know why that's true? Because Christianity is the only religion in the world that practices communion. We're the only ones. Jews, Hindus, others have ritual bathing, baptisms. That's not unique to us. That was passed on to us from our ancestry. Communion, though, the way we do it, unique to Christians. So, in those days from 0 to 300, if you could name names and see a person receive communion, they had a death sentence on their head. When they left, if you could follow them home, they would kill them, their wives, their families, anybody else associated with them because they wanted to wipe out Christianity. So it was a big deal, 0 to 300, to claim the name of Jesus. You had to put your life on the line every time you did it. Now, and so what did worship look like? It's quiet, regular dress, in hiding, scriptures if you could find them, lots of singing because you could do that and praying for one another. And they would eat together and take communion if they made sure that nobody else was watching and it was a secure location. That was, that was worship in the first 300 years, according to the earliest writings we have. Now, Constantine converted. What did Constantine's life look like? What does a ruler of the free world's life look like? Lots of parades, processions, fancy clothes, robes, choirs, bands, orchestras, all the sorts of things that we now associate from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when we grew up, as traditional church, none of that's out of church. That's all out of civic pomp and circumstance. Does it make sense? Now, I'm not, I'm not knocking that. That's not what we do here. But I'm not knocking that. But that's not what the early church looked like. That's what the civil Constantinian empire looked like, and the church got co-opted into that. Does that make sense? And so the big governmental displays was what church began to look like because that's what Constantine did. And he was the ruler of the free world, and he was a Christian, so other people did. Now, it no longer costs you your life to be a Christian. It might cost you your life not to be. So there were lots of conversions at the sword. They said, hey, are you a Christian? By the way, I work for Constantine. They're like, yes, sir, I think I am. So all of a sudden, it became good for business to be a Christian. It meant you kept your life, kept your family, kept your livelihood. It might be good for you. It might be good for your family. And so the sorts of th reasons that people began to join churches changed. Church became the power structure of the world. I would argue that today that power structure is shifting back to the early church. And I believe that back in the 90s when we named the church because I thought that the church that our kids would grow up in would look more like Acts 2 than it did the 1950s. And I don't think I'm wrong about that, by the way. 
when you look at the center of the social society uh, around most of America, it's not at church any longer, and it's other places. And so the church then has to understand how to be a minority community within the larger culture if we're going to be ecclesia, if we're really going to give our lives for Christ and change the world. So that's one temptation. Temptation two, which is a big temptation for me, uh, is grace without truth. And I've even been a part of churches that were Grace Church. I've gone to Grace Church. I've been to camps that are all about grace. And grace, though, without truth is license. And, and it's loving, but it's directionless. And, and, and maybe you've been a part of these groups where you just love them, and they're friendly, and they're likable, and it's all great. But, man, their lives are a mess. And they just stay a mess. There's no one saying, you know, you might not want to drink that much before you're supposed to be at work in an hour. You might not want to drive there or do these things. That's not good for you. You might want to really be more careful about what you say or how you act or who you run with or, 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 or. And, and so what happens with grace, grace is so beautiful and so winsome. But it takes truth. Both together. Always together. And when we hold grace and truth together, like Jesus did, when we hold grace and truth together, we represent or represent Jesus to a hurting world, which is our calling. And grace, again, is that unconditional love and acceptance. Grace lays the foundation for healing. There's no healing without grace, friends. There's no healing of relationship unless grace is at the base of it. Grace is the very first ingredient that we must have for growing up in the image of God. To understand that God first loved us, that God's grace is for us. Uh, we can't earn it or deserve it, but it's always there for us. And it's beautiful, and it's kind, it's generous, it's full of mercy, full of forgiveness. It's awesome. And you have to have it. The only problem with grace is, and the beautiful thing about grace is, that it's limitless. It has no limits. And left unchecked without, tra- without truth, it means you also have no boundaries. So Grace's followers, they need guidance to steer them away from real danger, real trouble, real heartache over what we might call, maybe you've lived in this with me at some time, you know the people in our lives that have the same problems over and over and over again? We love them, we show them grace, but nothing's changing, it's still a mess, it's still a problem. Dallas Willard helped me with this. Dallas Willard, and, and, and if you're my age or older, you'll probably get this. If, if, if you're younger, you may not know this. Anybody know the term Mr. Goodwrench? Mr. Goodwrench, younger kids are like, I have no idea what you're saying. There used to be a commercial about Mr. Goodwrench. You always wanted to go with Mr. Goodwrench, and, and automotive places that had the Mr. Goodwrench sign meant you could count on them. Dallas would say, but what if Mr. Goodwrench was actually Mr. Badwrench? How do you know he's Mr. Goodwrench without the truth of what's going on? Now, that's important. Um, when I was in Dallas uh, at SMU, we were going to head home for Thanksgiving uh, to Chantel's family. And I pulled into one of those Jiffy Lube places. It might have been a quick lube or some other lube. I'm not trying to be pejorative against a certain group. Just one of those, you know, all-inclusive places where they'll do your windshield wiper fluid, your oil, your tires, the whole thing. And they were the nicest people I'd ever met. I mean, I was, just, I was like, wow, this is great. And they were fast. I mean, I went in there. And um, they, I, went, I mean, I bet it wasn't 10 minutes. They had my car back to me. And I was like, wow, this is great. Check, 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 check. Green, 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 green. And now here's something weird about your pastor you may not want to know. But... Um, I have a penchant for using all of the windshield wiper fluid like day of. Like, like, I want a clean windshield when I'm driving. I want to see everything perfectly. I don't mind wasting some and spraying it on the guy behind me. It doesn't matter. I, I want it clean. They pulled around, and I was like, thank you. They're so good to see you, Mr. Foster. Yeah, 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 great, great. 
And so I did what I always do. I was like, nothing. No. And I looked at the thing and said, windshield wiper fluid topped off. Yes. I was like, no. I was like, you, you need to do this again. So they took my car around. And they're like, oh, so sorry about that. We thought we did it. And so, you know, bring it back 10 minutes later. I'm like, great. Headed to Thanksgiving, ready to go. You know when you're ready to be at Thanksgiving? And, and so I'm like, all right, I'm going to go. And, uh, you know, windshield wiper fluid. Good. Now, look, I checked my tires. All four tires were low. I looked at the sheet. Said my tires were fine. Said, said my tires are fine. Not fine. Said my windshield wiper was, was full. Wasn't full. Did you put oil in my car? You know, or, or am I going to be dead on the side of the road here? Like, no, no, it's great, Mr. Foster. Good to see you. Ten minutes later. I mean, I spent like a half a day going through every, everything. Now, I got to tell you, I was kind of nervous driving to Tulsa. I had experienced Mr. Bad Ranch. Or at least Mr. I don't know what I'm doing ranch. Right? Now, if we're not careful as a church, we'll do the same thing. You come in here. How you doing? Great. Have a great day. Smile, smile. Pat you on the back. There you go. To a mess. Doesn't work. Feels good. Let's us off the hook. I don't really want to know your problems. Don't want to know anything about you. Just get on down the road, not in my business. That's Grace Church. It doesn't work without truth. Now, without the truth of the real situation, change is impossible. You don't know what's going on. Truth is what is real, but truth before grace of relationship brings anxiety, guilt, anger, frustration. Now, friends, this is really important that we understand this. You cannot speak truth unless you're in relationship. Say that with me. You cannot speak truth unless you're in relationship. It doesn't work. All of you trying to correct people online, give it up. They don't know you. They don't care what you have to say. Keep it to yourself. I mean, seriously, you're not helping. Do not talk to your kids being on them about stuff when you don't, they don't know you, that you love them. That you're not in relationship. You don't know what's going on with their life. You can't correct somebody you don't know. Does it make sense? They have to know first that you love them. Then the correction must come if any, any kind of movement's going to happen. So, some of you have been a part of truth groups. Man, arrogant, mean, cold, just whoa, harsh. You know what I'm saying? Now, it, that's clean. I mean, organizational structure, it's easy. We're in, you're out, move on. Super easy to manage, brutal in terms of the catastrophe and the collateral damage and the shrapnel that happens in those organizations. Make sense? Because it's good as long as you're in. But friends, nobody's in forever. And then you're on the outs. So here's the thing. Truth without grace is judgment. That doesn't work either. That won't save a hurting world. That just pushes them on down. So grace and truth, friends, always together. Amen? Yeah. That's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Because truth is just as mean as grace is nice. That's the way Dr. Henry Cloud puts it. I recommend his little book to you. Um, about this on changes that heal he says all truth followers do a scowl and scream and then he says this how about if we try mixing grace and truth that's a good idea isn't it and he said yeah of course yeah pastor mark here's the thing it is really tough to pull off right because you got grace over here and you got truth over here and then they pull and there's a tension and we've been arguing about that for two thousand years grace and truth friends you have to have both have to have both but it's hard, and there's always a tension there, always. People are going to want you to be more grace-filled. Other folks are going to want to tell you the truth. It takes both. So our action steps for this week. One is if we're truly going to be ecclesia and not kirch, then how will I be a part of God's, what's the key word? Movement. 
As you're out there for the transformation of the world, how do you do that? How are you going to be a part of that movement? It's not a place. It's not even one people. It's a movement of the Holy Spirit of God out in the world. And then secondly, even harder, how will I share both, same with me, grace and truth simultaneously? And those of your parents, you understand the challenge of this. You just do. Because it takes both. And, and that's our calling, because that's who Jesus is, perfectly in grace and truth, grace and truth. Now, over the next number of weeks, we're going to be hanging here with grace and truth. What does it look like? Who's included in a church of grace and truth? How do we live that out together? We'll be looking at that next week. We hope to see you then. Uh, it's a high and beautiful calling. Let's pray.